0: Okay, why don't we come on back together? Welcome back in those who are grabbing donuts. How many of you guys had an extra special challenging time finding parking? Anybody? A little tricky. It's the joys of being here. We get to share it with those playing soccer. So I'm glad you all made it here. My name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been with us for very long, you'll know that we are in the middle of a series that is called Explore God. And this is a series actually that's been going on uh, for the last about five weeks. And we're doing this with a number of other churches, almost 200 churches and parachurch organizations throughout the Bay Area. And we're asking questions and we're kind of digging into seven kind of big questions around God and faith um, and talking about those questions. And I do want to just remind you what are the questions that we've already talked about so I think there's a slide here that'll show you the kind of the four questions we've already been asking of ourselves. And I, if you haven't had a chance to listen to any of these, I encourage you to go to the website uh, or to church center and listen to them because there's some really interesting conversations. And I think this series is relevant for us if we're followers of Jesus because I think it, it's it's good for us to be able to ask questions of ourselves as well as if you're someone here who's still trying to figure out what faith and Journey with God is about. Um, this is a series for you as well, and in fact, I'm glad you're here. Really want to be able to welcome you here to be able to ask those questions with us. The fact is, we all have questions. Um, my wife reminded reminded me that the famous philosopher Big Bird has said, que- "asking questions is a great way of finding out things." <laughs> right? Big Bird knows lots questions really are good because they help us to wonder and to explore and understand what it is that we believe? Who are we believing in and what are we following? And it helps kind of poke, poke at that and prod at that a little bit to help us really more deeply understand it. The question that we get to talk about today, the big question for us to consider is a question that says, is Christianity too narrow? Is Christianity too narrow? Now, Ironically when I saw this list and I thought I was going to be doing this sermon I thought that feels like a broad question <laughs> doesn't it like it seems a little ironic like wait what do you, what do you mean too narrow like what part is too narrow what do you mean by too narrow and how narrow is too narrow I, you know like getting all these questions right so I started to think more about what this fresh question might be about what is it that how is this question really be frame, being framed and I think we could frame it more accurately with the question of saying Why does Christianity believe it holds this exclusive vision of faith in God and a path to eternal life? Why does Christianity believe it holds an exclusive vision of faith in God and a path to eternal life? There are many religions in this world. Why does Christianity make such exclusive claims for how we can know God and how to enjoy him forever? Aren't there many ways to God? And Christianity is just one of them that fits some of us but not all of us? And so there's different ways to do this. And I think what underlies, as I thought about this question a lot more, I think what underlies this question, and maybe especially for those who might be looking from the outside in on Christianity, is a frustration for, the, for those that are saying, you know, these followers of Jesus hold this exclusive view of Jesus being so special. Why do I have to follow him to truly know and be right with God? And I think especially now in our culture, this is a real challenge because We don't like being given no options or no other options. As a culture, I think we tend to like having lots of choices. Isn't that right? We kind of enjoy having lots of choices, choices that we can pick and choose from, choices where we can say, look, if this works for me, it may not work for you, and that's okay because I have this choice, and you can take this choice. You know, I think we see that more in evidence when we go into, have, have you been into Target recently? Anybody had to go buy toothpaste, for instance? You know, if you go into Target and you go down the toothpaste aisle, you'll see that there are dozens of varieties of toothpaste. And there's varieties for those who want to get whiter teeth. But maybe you don't care so much about that, you want to get fresh breath. Or maybe you need to deal with plaque in a more detailed way. There are choices for you. You have lots of options. But think about this. Think about choosing cereal. How many of you have been down the cereal aisle anytime recently? It literally is a whole aisle, right? Almost a whole aisle in the store. Did you know, just think of this one, did you know that there's 20 different types of Cheerios? (laughs) There are literally 20 different types of Cheerios (laughs) that exist. Let me share with you the 20 different types of Cheerios that actually, Cheerios that do exist today. Now, I am in danger right now of making you hungry or also making you jealous that you haven't tried some of these, right? You're like, oh, I didn't know that they had that you know, vanilla spice Cheerios. That's pretty cool. But I think this is because the Cheerios makers decided that we need more choices. Having more choices is actually good, right? Because you can choose the different ones you like. And over time, I think we've come to believe that in all kinds of parts of our lives, that having choices enable us to pick and choose what we like. And if you don't like the vanilla spice Cheerios, you can have the Cheerios Oat Crunch cinnamon, right? Good for you. And I think for things like toothpaste and cereal... Maybe that's true. Maybe it's really good that we can have a lot of choices. But the reality is that toothpaste and cereal choices aren't going to really make a major impact in our lives. Or maybe they shouldn't. Maybe there's some of you, if you didn't get your vanilla spice Cheerios and instead you're stuck with the apple cinnamon Cheerios, that's going to throw you off in a big way. (laughs) Maybe that's true, and if it is, let's have a conversation about the value of Cheerios in your life. Hopefully that's not the case. But what about things that really matter? What about the things like medical treatments that can mean life or death? What if one choice has a really different outcome than another choice? Don't you want to choose the choice that is going to give you a greater chance of success, that has the best chance of success? In that case, not all choices are equal. And what you choice you make can make the difference between life and death. You know, back in the 1800s, it was a different world, and especially as it relates to disease. It was a different time. Now, they were just kind of learning about uh, microscopic organisms, and, but they still didn't understand the real causes of disease. And so there was a lot of research being done, but as a result, there was still a lot of guessing into what was causing various diseases and how to treat those diseases. One disease that was really difficult and very fearful was one that was called hydrophobia, Anybody know what hydrophobia has? What's the more common name for hydrophobia? Some of you are raising here. Rabies, known as rabies. In some countries, in many countries actually, but in some countries especially, pets were really popular. But what was happening was these wonderful loving pets that you'd have would suddenly change their behavior. They'd go from these loving pets to suddenly crazed, vicious animals that would attack all those around them. And if you were bitten by that pet or you were bitten by someone else's pet, or even just a random animal in the street, which was happening, at first, nothing would happen. You'd you know, kind of go through a little trauma of the attack, but, after, but then, after a number of weeks, rabies would take hold, and the result was horrific for those who had this happen to them. The victims would experience hallucinations. It's actually called hydrophobia because they also had this extreme fear of water. They would have violence and paralysis And within between two and ten days, they would all die. You rarely saw someone come out of this alive. It was really fatal. And so as you can imagine, in this time, and throughout history actually, but especially in this time where animals are becoming more popular to have at home, this fear of rabies was becoming really extreme. And people were going to desperate attempts to cure rabies. Now, at the time, there were a number of different treatments that were being given for those who had been bitten by rabid animals. Um, And these are some of those treatments that were being given at that time. The first one is a thing called madstones. So actually, there was a round, porous mass that they would find in deer stomachs. And the doctors believed that if you took that mass and put it on the uh, lesions, that it would somehow suck out the poison from rabies. And people believed in this enough that they would actually hand these down from generation to generation. So you'd have a family madstone that you might, you, know, you might actually divide it up among the different kids, and they would pass it down from generation to generation with the hope that this would actually help them if they ever got bitten by a rabid animal. So that was one treatment. Another one was cauterizing. You would cauterize the wound. Sometimes they actually used acid to do that, with the idea that that would somehow cure rabies. There was one thing called, you may have heard this, hair of the dog. The idea was if you ingest a hair from the infected dog, it would actually help you get over or not get rabies. They didn't bathe as much as we might be used to now. They thought bathing in the ocean might actually help solve this. So that was one idea. One thought and one thing that was used was injecting snake poison. It didn't actually work and, in fact, might have hastened the death, but it was one thing that they'd actually tried. And then finally, one of the things was called a mixture of crayfish eyes placed on the wounds. These were all things that were being done to deal with rabies, because no one understood what was causing it, and no one knew why it was happening, but when you, and if you got it, it was horrific. But the thing is, they didn't work. They weren't working. Every once in a while, randomly, a person would survive, and you'd be kind of like confused as to why, maybe, but it wasn't a consistent thing at all. And, and so at this time, there was a Frenchman in the, uh, in the country of France, a man named Louis Pasteur. Anyone heard of Louis Pasteur? So Louis Pasteur decided to take a much more scientific approach to this. He actually did hundreds of studies and investigations and tests with animals. And he was just understanding some of this theory of microscopic organisms and sterilization. And he began to use this thought of thinking to begin to think about how he could solve this problem. And he discovered this treatment of a, a variety of shots that he could give to animals of weakened forms of the virus. And when he gave those shots to the animals who were bitten and infected, they wouldn't actually get rabies. And they he also discovered that if you gave this to animals that had not gotten bitten, they would never get it if they did. And the treatment always worked. Finally, the day came where it was like, now are we going to test this on humans? And there was a little boy that was bitten by a rabid dog, and his parents were desperate and said, you got to do this because we're going to lose him. So in 1885, he tested this one little boy, and the boy was cured. He never got rabies, and he was cured, and it was amazing. News spread everywhere. Like, everybody heard about this and wanted Pasteur's treatment. People started coming from everywhere. There's stories of 19 Russians who were attacked by a wolf, who all came and got treated by Pasteur, to his institute in Paris, where he was now treating people with this uh, special set of shots. And that... And it was curing like 99.5% of the people who were getting these shots. This was so widely known that when four boys in New Jersey, United States, got bitten by a rabid animal, there was a national campaign to raise money to send them to Pasteur so that they could get cured. And they went, they got cured, and they came back, and they became national celebrities. They actually went on a tour around the States to show that that they were okay. It was amazing. Now, when, when Pasteur's treatment for rabies showed up, there were alternate treatments. We just saw a number of them. There were others, but there were alternative treatments for rabies at the time. But here's one question that no one asked. Is this treatment of Pasteur too narrow? Right? Is this treatment... like Okay, lots of shots. How about Pasteur? What if you do the one shot, and then, then let's add in the, like, the snake poison? How about if we did that combo? Or what if we did like, a couple of shots and then do the madstone thing? Nobody was asking this question. The treatments were out there, but no one asked this question because it was a matter of life and death, and Pasteur's treatment was working. Unlike choosing between a different box of cereal, which in the end is just a different form of food that's going to fill you up, choosing the right treatment for a deadly disease makes all the difference in the world. Christianity is alone in all the major world religions in its diagnosis of the human problem and the treatment for that problem. Christianity is alone in the diagnosis of the human problem and the treatment for that problem. So let's start by acknowledging this. We humans have a problem. We are not as good or as nice or as united or as caring as we really would like to be. Is that not true? Look around us. Look at the world around us. And we see that hatred and murder and lying and jealousy and anger and stealing kind of rule the day in many cases. I mean, just think back on the shows that you might have been streaming this last week. How many of those shows were about murder? Or maybe about people who were uh, competing with each other to undermine each other to somehow get ahead? Or maybe gossiping behind each other's backs? We kind of watch these shows because we know we're not really... We're bored by things that don't have this drama because that's what we're looking for in life because we know that's what happens. We've got Russians battling Ukrainians. We've got Israelis battling Palestinians. And the problem is, it's not them, it's us. It's not, oh, those bad people. It's us. We're all implicated in this problem. You know, it's interesting. Sally Cohn, who's a CNN commentator recently wrote a book called The Opposite of Hate, and it calls itself a guidebook to kind of making ourselves a better humanity. And so she goes through this book of trying, how do we, how do we make ourselves better people? But interestingly, kind of later in the book, she makes an interesting confession. And listen to what she, re, uh, she, she, uh, she says in part of this that towards the end. She says, "'Personally, I haven't figured out how to stop hating, "'let alone how to consistently pursue meaningful, "'mutually respectful connections.'" I'm constantly catching myself hating someone or something. My own hate constantly oozes out in small and big ways. In other words, I haven't arrived at some place of enlightenment. I've simply realized I need to turn on the light and start noticing things differently and trying to be different. I think she's, being, she's kind of getting this. It's like, yeah, I'm writing this book so we stop being this, but I struggle with this. It's really harder than I thought. No matter how many treatments we try, we're still infected with a deadly disease. Are we not? The Bible calls this condition sin. The Bible calls this condition sin. At the beginning of time, humans chose to reject God and become our own little self-gods. And the result of that rebellion is sin. It's what the Bible calls sin. And sin in simple terms is we're not measuring up. We are no longer being who we've been made to be. We're not living by the standards that this God who made us wanted us to live by. This God who is true love and, and truth and justice and mercy and peace, we are no longer living like that. And the result of that is that this sin has separated us from God. It's a permanent separation. In humans, we can no longer relate to, we can no longer enjoy, we can no longer be in presence with the holy God in whom there's no sin. You know, Paul was one of the early church leaders, and he wrote about this in his, uh, in his letter to the Romans, and he was the one who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He said this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you might read that, and you might think, well, okay, that's okay. That's not good. I do admit, yes, we seem to have a problem. We, we humans are struggling through this, but we're smart people. We'll just work harder. That's kind of how we do this. We'll just figure it out. We'll work harder. You know, generation upon generation, we'll get better at this. Somehow, we'll get our own way back to God in some form. But there's a bigger problem in this. And the bigger problem is this. Paul, in that same letter, says this. For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. When the Bible speaks about death, the Bible isn't saying just physical death. It's actually talking about spiritual death and actual eternal spiritual separation from God, from a good God. So we humans, it seems, we have a problem. We've been bitten by the rabid dog of sin and left without a treatment, our sin infection is going to lead to a miserable death. Unless some amazing, unique treatment can be found. Unless some amazing, unique treatment can be found. Let's go back to the rabies example. There were a lot of treatments being tried at that time. And they had different effects, but they really weren't saving anyone. It wasn't until a whole completely different treatment was found that rabies was cured. I think part of this original question around, is Christianity too narrow, comes from an assumption in the end that religions are all essentially the same. Right? It's a little bit like Cheerios. You know, there's a lot of different flavors, but at the end they all function to give us energy to make us stronger, to make us better people, to somehow better ourselves. And so whether it's a version of Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism, there's many ways to get to God and to make ourselves better people. And in the end, they're just different flavors of the same food. I think there's a general view of that in many ways. But as followers of Jesus, we can't align with that teaching or belief because we don't think it is true. And in fact, we think that believing it is detrimental to our lives. Let me first say this, though, as kind of a caveat. Let me say, as I'm talking about other religions, I want to make sure it's really clear that as followers of Jesus, we are called to respect and honor other religions and treat every person, regardless of their belief, with love, dignity, and peace. There's a lot, actually, to be respected and honored and appreciated in other religious practices that help others and do good. But it's really important to understand this, that every other major religion differs fundamentally from Christianity in this one fact. Every other religion focuses on rules and practices designed to help us achieve some path of goodness, to do all the right things, to become acceptable to whatever the deity of choice is, ultimately leading to some achievement of eternal peace by having completed or internalized whatever that expected list of to-dos is. Now, look, I acknowledge that what I'm going to say here may seem simplistic, and in many ways it is, but this is really for the purposes of a comparison, but I just want to walk you through some of these comparisons and build these out as we say it. Orthodox Judaism says that a person has to obey 613 different commands in order to please God. So obedience to the law is the path to heaven. Islam has something called the five pillars. Now, those five pillars sound a lot less than 613, but they're still kind of a similar thing. They're all about the things that you need to do in order to be right with God, or with Allah in this case, and work your way to heaven. Buddhism is all about an ultimate goal of achieving nirvana. One gets there by working towards an elimination of all desire. That's your goal, is to just work hard to get that desire out of you and eventually get to a point where you can then reach nirvana. And Hinduism says that one works their way to heaven by becoming one with Brahma, the all-prevailing force of the universe, and that's achieved by living a moral life. And in that, you may have to do that many, many, many different times to get it right. Now, these treatments may, you know, while these treatments might have some some benefit and make people nicer or better or more caring, though I would argue with you, and maybe you guys could argue with me, that actually, as we look at the history of the world, religions haven't always done that. In fact, sometimes religions can serve to do the opposite and make people more meaner and more judgmental and not getting along with one another. But either way, the result is this. The chasm between us and God is so large that this doesn't work. Our incomplete efforts to be good people, however it is, we can try and we can do it and in some ways we can get better, but that's still not enough. There is a huge chasm between us and a holy God. We need some amazing, unique treatment to deal with this disease. That is why we who call ourselves Christians are so focused on Jesus, right? That is why we're so focused on Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the one who's made a way to bridge the chasm between us and God. There's an infinite divide between us and a holy God, an unholy us and a holy God, and Jesus is the one who's bridged that gap. When Jesus was on this earth, he said this about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you may know me well enough to know that I looked up the word no one in Greek, because that that's how this uh, New Tem- was, Testament was written. I've looked up the Greek word about no one, and I discovered this. Actually, it means no one. <laughs> it means not even one. None, nobody, nothing. Okay. So let's be honest, that sounds like pretty exclusive words, and it is. Those are pretty exclusive words. Jesus isn't saying, I am a way, among many others. He's saying, I am the way. He is saying this, you are sick, and I am your cure. None of these other treatments, even if they sound good, are actually going to work. And I alone and the vaccine that you need to save you from death. Okay, let's be honest, that's not sounding very inclusive of Jesus now, is it? And it isn't. In fact, it sounds pretty narrow, I would say. But you know what? Here's the thing. In the case of really important things, sometimes narrow is good. Because narrow is targeted, and it solves the problem, whereas more broad things don't necessarily deal with the real issue. Think about the rabies example. You know, when there's a cure for disease, you don't want Pasteur running around going, you know, there's a bunch of different treatments. Mine's one of them. Pick one of those. Whatever one you think works, go for it. No, he's like, this is going to work. Come get this. You want him screaming from the mountaintop. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's like, this is it. Come get this. Well, maybe you can ask this. Then, okay, who does Jesus think he is? saying he's the cure for our problem. Okay, maybe I'm willing to admit there's a problem. How's Jesus saying he's the cure? Well, in the Bible's own words and in the acts of Jesus himself, and we'll talk more about this next week, actually. Susan's going to talk more about this. We will affirm that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And he came to earth, and he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he chose to die a horrible death, and he was resurrected but he chose that death in our place because we deserve to die, and he did that instead of us. There is no other religious leader, whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Moses, who claimed to be God, who was able to live a sinless life, who chose to die on our behalf, and who was raised to life again. None. And that sinless life that he lived qualifies him and him alone to be the only one that can take our place for the penalty that we deserve for the disease we have. You know, in that earlier verse we read from Paul in Romans, it actually says this fully, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is the release from the penalty of sin. And this gift is a free gift from God through Jesus Christ. No one else did this. Jesus is the amazing unique treatment for the disease of sin in our lives. But now you might be thinking, okay, Jesus is saying it's a little bit narrow here. Maybe he is saying he is saying this is narrow, that he's the only way. Who is this being offered to? Is this also narrow? Is this exclusive? In another part of Jesus's story, we see him talking to the crowds about who he is and inviting them to this offer of eternal life. And this is what Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So I did it again. I looked up that word all in Greek and it means all everyone, any can come to me. So, While Jesus is being narrow about him being the only way, he's being incredibly broad in his offer. He's being inclusive and inviting everyone to come to him. Now, what we're going to see is that those who come to him are those who are weary. Those who've realized that this whole effort of trying to be good enough to reach God and trying to do all the right things isn't working. And they are the ones who know that they need to be rescued from this disease of sin and death. They're the ones who've tried the other treatments and have said, this isn't cutting it for me. I, it's not working. I need something else. The amazing inclusiveness that we see in Jesus is this offer is to everyone. But it's especially to those who, by almost all the religious and successful standards of the world, have no hope. Right? He's like, come to me, all of you are weary. This is not to those who are like, you know, I'm doing pretty well. It's to those who are like, I'm not cutting it, and I have nothing that's going to make this work. They know they have no other cure. The treatment is not a bunch of new hoops for them to jump through. It's treatment of rest. That's what he offers, rest from striving, rest from pretending, rest from trying these crazy treatments that aren't actually working. That's what Jesus is inviting people to. He's saying, I'm the answer, now come, come. None of this other stuff is going to work. Jesus' treatment is simple and it's free and it's for all. It's for everyone. All right, so let me get back to the original question then. Is Christianity too narrow? Yes, Christianity is narrow in the treatment of our sin problem. So we will admit, I will admit Christianity is narrow. We believe that Jesus is the only way to deal with the sin problem. That is a way that's narrow. But could you say it's too narrow? I think you could argue the other side. The fact that there's a way is amazing. There didn't have to be a way. But God made a way. He made a way, and that is an amazing gift. But here's the other side of this. Christianity is amazingly inclusive to whoever needs the treatment. It's offered to everyone. Louis Pasteur was giving his treatment away for free, and it was anybody that could show up there. And this is similar. Anyone who wants freedom from the disease of sin can get it. In fact, I would say that this invitation of Jesus is the most radically inclusive invitation ever given. The doors are wide open. The entry has nothing to do with your qualifications, nothing to do with your family origin, nothing to do with anything about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for us the cross. It's not about us doing, it's about what Jesus has done. Paul says it's a free gift and we have to accept it. Okay, but I do want to be straight and tell you the whole truth here. When you accept that free gift, if you accept the free gift of Jesus, the path of following Jesus in life will not be an easy one because the world doesn't like narrow choices. And so the path of following Jesus is not always—it's not going to be an easy one. You know, I've shared how, in some ways, you can almost try consider this idea of following Jesus like getting a vaccine, this idea of vac- vaccination. But too often, I think sometimes followers of Jesus think that's what the answer is: is that I get my free gift, I get my free shot of Jesus vaccine, my free shot of salvation, and then I just go live life the way I used to always live it. Nothing's changed. It's this time though; I have my eternal vaccine card. Like, woo-hoo got my vaccine card. I'm, I'm good. Dogs can bite me, no problem. But Jesus said this as well about following him in, in Luke chapter 9. And he said this to all. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The reality is this, that following Jesus in your life is a narrow path. It is not a wide path. It is a narrow path. But when Jesus enters into your life and brings you salvation, he brings you into his family, into the family of God. And now what does he start doing? He works on you to actually make you more like himself and like the character of God that you're going to go live eternity with. And that often means you have to leave stuff that's not going to fit on the narrow road. Not everything can go with you on that. But the good news of God is that Jesus doesn't leave us alone in that. He comes and he brings, invites the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and change us. It's not that we reach God, that he comes and reaches down to us and he says, I'm going to work inside of you to make you more like me. So as I close today, I think there's an invitation for some of you here. For some of you, this invitation is to stop keeping your options open, and to choose Jesus. Choose to follow Jesus because he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And my encouragement to you is to come to him, confess your sin, and let him come and take that penalty from you that you can't handle and you can't get rid of on your own. And for some of you, you may be one who has been seeing Jesus as your eternal vaccine card. You know, you're safe for eternity, but you can kind of live your life pretty much as you've always lived it, no change. And it's not impacting the choices you're making today. And Jesus is inviting you to take the road less traveled because that's what it calls you towards, is to live a life that may not be easy, but it's good. And I invite you to come to him to recommit yourself to that. And that's the same process. You confess your sin and you ask him to come in and make a difference in your life and lead you. So at the end of this service, we're going to have time to pray. And I'm going to invite, if any of those things are striking you, I would invite you to pray. Um, but I'm going to pray for us now, invite the, the worship team up, and then uh, we'll have a time to, uh, to pray as well towards the end of the service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that there is a way. I think we come to this place sometimes where we think, well, gosh, why aren't there many ways? And the reality is, the fact that we have one way is amazing. And we thank you for that, Lord, that you are the one who has provided a way because you love us so much. You could have left us as we are, but you didn't. And so we thank you for, Jesus, for the fact that you came and you lived and you died and you were raised again because you wanted to take that penalty for us and that that is the choice that we can make. So I just pray right now, Lord, that you would just draw us into yourself, draw us into your presence, draw us into what it means to follow you, and to be reminded that it is a good thing. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.